there was a Gallup poll that came out on, on Friday, and it was about uh, the, our views of morality uh, in the U.S., and it, it was interesting because it said the majority of Americans would describe the moral climate of America as poor. Um, and so it was interesting where they started getting into the politics of it and separating things out by like Democrat, political, uh, independents, uh, Republicans. And as they started looking at it, the reason why people would say that it kind of varied as, as you would expect. And uh, there were some that said the reason why we have a poor moral climate is a lack and disengagement of participation in, in institutional faith. Uh, there were some that it's more it's more around social causes that it's uh, there an increase in racism and so they were talking about different different things and it just it just made me start thinking that there's uh, a desire and something that I we hear so often is that many times we want to kind of move the moral goalposts uh, in deciding what is right and wrong uh, that there's a part of each of us. Uh, whether it's on a cultural level or whether it's on an individual level, that there's a part of me that wants to say, uh, I want to choose what's right and I want to be able to choose what's wrong and I want to be able to declare that. And on an individual level, that comes out, especially when I start looking, say, at my, at my own life where I see a fault that comes out. Um, and often what happens is my reaction is I want to say, well, that happened because I was tired. Uh, that happened because it was, you know, I'm just, it's been a stressful week and that came out and that's not normally me. It's, you know, or do you realize what the person did to me and that was just a response to that? So it's actually their fault. And there's a part of me that when uh, some of my own uh, flaws start being displayed, that I want to adjust the moral parameters to say, what I did, we can, we can minimize how bad that was. Or at least, or maybe I, I can even excuse myself and exonerate myself altogether. And uh, there's a part of that, and I think we can all feel that, there's a part of us that, that we always kind of want to say, well, how do you actually define that sin? Uh, how, what's, what's, was, did I really, would that really be characterized that way? Uh, there's a part of us that we want to say that my perspective on what I did is objective. Uh, and so I can look at that and I can decide, you know, that, that really wasn't that bad. Um, you know, that, that was excusable. The fault lies somewhere else. Uh, this, this happens culturally. I think that this happens individually. It happens outside of the church and it happens inside of the church. Uh, and when we look at this... Uh, we look at passages like we said uh, last week in Genesis 1 and 2 where God created everything, he called everything good, and yet when I look at the world around me and when I look at my own heart, there's a part of me that says, how did we get here? Uh, I just, do we need to just move the, the goalposts around until we get back to calling it good and th say things are excusable and things are permissible? Uh, it's, it's hard to explain this, and when we get to Genesis 3, which we're going to talk about today, it's such a downer of a passage uh, that you look at this and you say, like, where's the hope in this? 
And the, the desire is to just say, let's, can we just brush this aside and say, it's not really that bad, things are okay, um, let's put a smile on everything and say, everything's excusable, or at least it's not our fault that it's this way. The, the reality is we, we have responsibility for our actions, and uh, before we even get to the aspect of acting out in sin, we have to talk about what is it that, what way are we viewing God prior to our sin? And Genesis 3 speaks about this. And so we're going to jump into to Genesis 3, and um, the setting for this, if you're, if you're familiar with the passage, is that God has created everything. He's created uh, humanity, and he's blessed them, and he said, I will provide everything you need for you. The one rule that I'm giving you is there's going to be a tree that I don't want you to eat from. There's one tree. You can eat from anything else except for this one. And so this conversation strikes up where this creature, this serpent, comes and approaches Eve and starts tempting her to, to eat from this tree. The way he tempts her is, is interesting. That the promise that, that, God, that God said, the consequence is if you eat from this, it will be death. And so in verse 4, the serpent uh, contradicts this, and he says, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree for, uh, was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This says that, that Eve saw the fruit, sees that it's good, she eats it. There's something about it where she says, I need that, that this would be good for me. And, and so she claim, takes claim over it. Her, her actions are in response to the serpent who, who says, uh, look, Look at what, what God's saying. It's not actually true. You can take this for yourself and it will be good for you. The, the idea here with, with this tree itself, um, it's, not, it's not simply wisdom. It's not that God wants Adam and Eve to be dumb hicks and like not know anything. It's, it's that it's, there's something about the, this tree that provides something independent from God. There's something about this where they can, they can enjoy it and, and partake of it, and there's something that they can achieve that they should be achieving directly from God, but they can find separate from him. Uh, one commentator describes this as that this is the ability to, to proclaim what is right and wrong. This is, not, this is not just wisdom in general. This is the ability to say, I can look at this and say that this is good and this is bad. And just like in Genesis 1 and 2 where God looked at creation and said, this is good, it says that the woman looks at the fruit and says, this is good, and she partakes of it. The serpent's appeal to Eve is that God does not have your best intentions in mind. He says, the serpent says that God says you will suffer death because of that. It's not true that, that he's just using that as a threat because, look, there's wisdom that you can have from this. This is something that God is keeping from you. 
There's a part of this temptation where Eve is being told that God does not have her best interests in mind, that God is not interested in her welfare, God is interested in his own. That God is using humanity to prop himself up. That God is inhibiting her and keeping her from her full potential. That God's actions are ultimately selfish and greedy. And she says, well, if God cannot be trusted, who else can be trusted but myself? And so I'm going to take this and I'm going to lay claim to this and I'm going to claim this authority for myself because then I can decide for myself what is good. I can decide for myself what I need because ultimately God, who's supposed to be my creator and my king, must not be reliable and must not be faithful. And so I'm going to take this and this will be my own and I can say that this is good and I can say that this is is what I need. Eve rejects the created order that was established in in the last chapter and two. Francis Schaeffer says that the basic position of man in rebellion against God is that he's autonomous. He says says that our idea, the way that we sin and reject God is ultimately by saying that I don't need him, I have myself. That God is not my king, I am a king as a peer to God himself, and that I can decide what I need, I can decide what's best for me and what is good, and that I don't need God to choose that. Because God's intentions ultimately are not for me, they're for himself. And this becomes the dynamic that, that emerges, and so from this, Eve gives herself permission to sin. She decides, I know what is best for myself. I can decide this. This this, uh, reveals that um, when we think of sin simply as a behavioral problem, we we take a very small view of sin. Like, if if sin was simply behavioral, couldn't God just say, okay, spit it out, like, throw up, get it out of your stomach, and, like, go sit on timeout for a little bit? Like, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was, before this, it was a relational issue that, that Eve said, I don't trust God. My problem is here with God. It's not so much about the fruit. Like, it was the whole setting of not being able to trust God and losing confidence in him that kind of gave permission to this whole action. Sin is a relational thing. And so when we, when we think of sin as simply like, oh, that person lied, you know, I, he needs to be disciplined, that person cheated, that, those things are wrong, we, we miss the magnitude of what sin, what sin reveals, That there's something deeper than sin, that sin is ultimately a relational issue that we are rejecting the dynamic that we're supposed to have with God and how we're supposed to be relating to him. There's there's a part of me when I I look at myself and when I I over-identify with um, my performance, um, whether it's some project I'm taking on or something, something I'm, I'm doing, whether it's a, like a home, imp- even something like a home improvement project or something I'm doing here at the church, when there's something about myself where I become overly invested in it, 
there's, there's a part of me that has started to lose confidence that God himself is my creator who has made me and declared me valuable. And so I start saying, it, I have to do this right, and not just right, this has to be perfect, because from this, that's where I ascribe my value. And so I become overly invested in it, and I get moody and crabby and uh, not pleasant to be around. And there's a part of us that we do this in different ways where I start to lose confidence in God. And so I need to go and make sure that I get what's important for me or what I need to get, my, to get my own needs met because I can't get it from an unreliable, unfaithful God. And so this sets the stage for this is a relational issue not just an issue of an action that we do. And so, so Eve acts out, she does this, and she starts claiming control over something that ultimately is supposed to be God's. She starts claiming, this is what I need. I'm, I need to provide for myself. I'm going to claim autonomy. And so this mars our dy the dynamic we have with God, this mars the relationship we have with God, and that's why there is a sin barrier that comes up after this chapter. From a place of doubting our king's integrity, we sin by seizing control over what we think we should have. This suspicion that we have towards God, it continues to play out then in how we try to address our sin after the fact. So they, Adam and Eve, they partake of this fruit, and then the result of sin becomes shame. So this is what happens. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is, this is such a sad scene. You see that that there was supposed to be this, this relational intimacy that humanity was supposed to have with God, and in response to sin, they hide from him. Like, notice, notice that they're continuing the trend of, of what happened earlier. At the beginning, what, what set the stage for, for the temptation for the sin was doubting that God was faithful and was for them. They sinned, and that trend has still continued. They, they're hiding from him because they still don't think he's faithful and, and good to them. Nothing has changed before or after the fact. They still don't think that God is reliable and faithful and trustworthy. And they experience shame. And so they need to find a plan to conceal their shame. So notice they, they sow fig leaves. Uh, just... just Think of how long it would take to do something like that. Like, this wasn't just something that happened, you know, a minute later. Like, there was actually thought and planning that went into constructing this. Like, the, sometimes when we think of shame and when we think of ways that we try to conceal it, there is there's an intentionality that happens with how we deal with our shame. 
It, it's not just like a haphazard circumstance. It just we we found a way to to kind of stumble across a, a, a way to cover our sin. Like there was thoughtfulness in. I'm going to put effort into concealing my shame and concealing what I, what I feel uh, embarrassed of. And so they do this and they put in work. They, they sew this together. They, they put on this, this barrier over them. And yet it doesn't actually reveal, it doesn't actually conceal their problem because they still have to hide from God. It's not effective. They've covered themselves, they've done something to deal with their shame, and yet they still feel the need to hide from God because it doesn't bring about the desired result. And so they hide from him. And so God comes looking for them, calling to them, and, and they're hidden. J. Hampton Keithley, an old pastor, he, he describes this approach as he says, our, our tendency after sin is to hide and to hurl. So we, we feel the shame of what we did, so our, we first want to hide and conceal our, our embarrassment of what, what it is. We don't like the shame of what it reveals about our character or lack of it. And then what we want to do is we want to cause a distraction, so we blame someone else. And so I'm going to hurl accusations at someone else. I'm going to say, it wasn't really my fault someone else did that. And that's what we see later on in the story. After the fact, when God confronts them, Adam says, it wasn't me, it was Eve's fault. And then Eve says, it wasn't me, like I got tricked by, by the serpent. And both of them, they hide what, what they did. And then after the fact, they say, it's, it's not me. You, you got, you're pointing the finger at the wrong person. I, I have nothing to, to blame. I'm not to blame here. It's, it's this other person. Our tendency after sin is to hide and to hurl. When I, when I try to picture um, what, what this interaction must have been like, you know, the, the fig leaf clothing and stuff, uh, I, think of, I think of like, Outcoming, you know, Will Ferrell and uh, Will Ferrell having like this uh, fig leaf. There we go. This like fig leaf speedo on or something. And you know, you just you know his his sense of humor where he's like he says everything. He can say everything with a straight face, and it's ridiculous. Um, and so you can just imagine uh, you're looking at him, and he comes out looking ridiculous uh, with these fig leaves on, and then it's like. Dude, what what are you doing? And him just completely straight faced, being like, "What? What? Nothing's nothing's different." And you're like, "You? I saw you yesterday. You weren't like that." And no, I've always had this here. And no, I saw you. You're like you've never worn this before. Something's obviously different about you. Why are you have that? Like, I just bumped into a bush and it gave me a hug or something. And you're like, "This this is ludicrous. Like, who are you fooling here?" And it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And yet Adam does this, and it's like there's the hope that he's going to trick God. Like there's the hope that God's not going to notice that I have these fig leaves on that I didn't have before. That somehow it's just eyes up here, and he, he doesn't realize that. And it, it's just absurd. You know, this, this Genesis 3, a lot of times it's, it's described as the, the first time that we see temptation happen in, in Scripture. 
Um, it's described as the first time that we see sin happen in Scripture. Uh, it's also described as the first time we see works righteousness happen in Scripture. You know, it's the first time that we see humanity sin and then their response to sin is, I need to do something to fix myself. The first time that it shows that the, the natural reaction for us to deal with our shame is to try to find a way to erase it and to fix ourselves. To find some way to find healing through our own self and through our own strength to deal with ourselves, to make ourselves better, to work on our sin and resolve it. And so as much as, we, as much as we look at this passage and say, you know, this reveals things about how we have a tendency to, to doubt God's character, it reveals things about what temptation is like and what it looks like, it also reveals that it's in our very nature when we, after we sin to try to deal with our problems ourselves. And this happens because it's a very continuation of the fact that we've continued to doubt that God is faithful and that God is good that nothing has changed in how we're viewing God. It's just now we have shame to deal with and we have to figure out what to do with it. So Adam and Eve, they, they resort to fig leaves. It doesn't fool God. And one, of, one thing that we sometimes forget is it doesn't fool each other. We don't fool each other very well either. You know, the people that, that know me, um, they, can, they can tell when I have fig leaves on. You know, they can, they can tell where it's like Daniel's, Daniel's kind of withdrawn. There's, this is something different. He's acting a little bit strange. You know, I, I can tell that something is going on in his life. And I'm thinking, man, I got him fooled. Like, I know what's going on, but no one else knows. Like, I'm, I'm acting normal and, you know, you know, I can make up some excuse or, you know, I can find some way to hide it. And if they really call me out on it, I'm going to hurl and I'm going to blame someone else. But the reality is, who's, who's fooled by this? Like, if we know each other we, we can tell that something is going on and our, our feeling and our hope is that we are convinced that, that we've thrown everyone off the, the scent and no one else really knows what's going on, but it's, it's ludicrous. Like, this is showing, like, Eve wasn't like, where'd that come from? It's, it's like they, they could tell from each other that they were hiding. God could tell that they were hiding. Like our, our very efforts to conceal and deal with our own sin, it doesn't fix anything. And it's a lot less obvious, and it's more obvious than, than we realize. The problem isn't just sin. The problem is feeling that we can deal with it ourselves. And so as much as we think, I sinned, that must be the barrier that's keeping me from God. Let me fix this, and then I can be okay with God. I can be okay with, with my, those that are close to me. The reality is, it's the fact that we're still hiding from it. That's what's keeping us away. 
I, I wonder how you would answer a question of what are your methods to hiding? What are the ways that you respond to your sin to conceal it? Where do you go? How do you mask it? What is it, what is it that you do to conceal your sin, to throw everyone else off the scent and think that, that you have it covered? This is something we all do. We all have a method somewhere that we go, somewhere we find a, a way to escape, Somewhere we think, maybe if I can just put it out of mind long enough, then enough time will pass where it'll just kind of resolve itself and disappear. But we have some, each of us has some kind of place that we go that we find a way to conceal our sin and hope that it gets taken care of. I have a way, you have a way. And the, the sad part about this is the longer we persist in this, the worse it gets and it doesn't resolve itself. Our best efforts, and we will put a lot of effort into this, will still fail in removing our guilt. The help we need must come externally. We are in need of saving. This story in Genesis is tragic, but it doesn't end without hope. See, after this, God... God does meet with the serpent and before Adam and Eve, and he does put judgment upon them. But it doesn't end just in judgment. He leaves them hope. In verse 15, he's speaking to the serpent. And God says, And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This passage, as we've said, this, this, this passage contains the first time we see temptation, the first sin, the first act of works righteousness. This is then the first time that we see the gospel being proclaimed in, in the Bible. This, this passage is, is where we see God predicting there is now going to be this conflict between good and evil that it's ultimately going to culminate in Jesus and his ministry with his death on the cross, that he will be the woman's seed and he will defeat evil at his own expense. His, his actions will be a death blow, a crush to the head of the serpent. He will defeat evil on the cross, but Jesus will not remain unscathed, that he will be wounded as well. But his wound is described as a wound to the heel. It is minor compared to the damage that he inflicts. And so at the very beginning of this, God declares that he has a plan for redemption. That this hasn't happened and there's, no, there's not an absence of hope, but he has shown his character and his faithfulness that he will address the needs that, that his people have. As much as Adam puts out effort to help himself and to resolve his conflict, God shows out effort that is actually effective. See, this reveals the truth that redemption requires an external sacrifice. Adam and Eve, they sewed clothes to cover their nakedness. And as much and though they did cover their nakedness, it didn't cover their shame. 
After this, at the, the end of Genesis 3, it says that God uh, made clothing, uh, skin clothing from an animal for them to give them, something similar to what they had, but, but different in this fact. And I, I love the way that um, True Face Ministry describes this. Uh, it says, every redemptive act not only deals with, with the sin, but in Christ provides the necessary covering of the shame. Redemptive act covers the sin and also the shame. Their shame, Adam and Eve's shame, was obviously not in their nakedness because they were covered, but it was in their hearts. It was the skin of the animal that covered them. This is the the skin of the animal that God provided for them later. But it was the blood of that animal that dealt with the shame of their heart. God provides for them later and doesn't just address the, the physical nakedness that they, that they have. He addresses the shame that's in their hearts. And that we can do things and we can find strategies and methods to cover the shame that we feel, but it doesn't address the shame because it's not ultimately what we have control over. It's something deeper and it's in our hearts. True redemption has to be provided by someone else. And God makes this provision. When I, when I think of this, I can't help but, but think of the story of the prodigal son um, that, that Jesus tells where, where the son of a, of a rich man takes his inheritance, leaves, uh, wastes it, and then when he's destitute and, and full of shame, he decides, maybe at least I can go back to my father and though I can't be his son anymore, Maybe at least I can be his servant and, and have enough food to eat. And he goes back to him in shame, just hoping to be a servant. And the father looks at him when, when he's coming down the road and goes out to greet him, embraces him. He puts his, his own wealth back on him. He cleans him up. He celebrates that he's home. That there's nothing the son could do to erase the shame of his actions. That he needs the embrace and the love and the provision of his father to cover that. I, I wonder if we are willing to stop hiding and hurling. Blaming others and covering our faults. I wonder if we're willing to speak to God honestly and tell him that our sin is not under control. I wonder if we're willing to trust that God has good intentions for us and that he's not looking to take advantage of us. When I am, and I probably have to say forced, when I'm forced to look at the reality of my faults, there is a moment where I, I frequently have to consciously decide I'm going to trust that the person who is speaking to me objectively has my intentions in mind. Like, they actually care about me and they're telling me this because they love me. There's this conflict that I have that I want to say, they're just saying these things because they're trying to have power over me. They're trying to manipulate me. They're saying these things just because they want something from me. And it's in those moments that I have to decide, can I really trust that this person cares about me? Can I really trust that they love me and they're telling me these things because it's for my benefit? 
and I have to make that decision. See, after when God uh, uh, gives judgment upon Adam and Eve and on the serpent, when he gives this first uh, demonstration of the gospel, notice there is no point here where we see repentance from Adam and Eve. There is never a point here where we, say, we see Adam and Eve say, you're right, we blew it, we messed up, God, I'm sorry, help me out here. But God does this anyways. God, God creates this plan for the gospel and says, I am formulating this plan to bring restoration for you, even though you're not asking for it. And if you're willing to trust in this, you can have healing and forgiveness. He says he, he does this, though he shows his character, even though his character has been questioned. The very God who, at the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve looked at and said, I don't know if he has my best intentions in mind. He shows that he does have their best intentions in mind at the end of this. He shows, I'm providing, I'm going to provide the gospel for you so that you can have hope at, in the midst of all of this even though you don't even deserve it, and even though you haven't even asked for it. And this is where we see that God is good. This is where we see the, the fullness and the depth of his grace towards us. If we are willing to trust God in the midst of our shame, we can have the opportunity to experience the healing that he freely offers. God is uh, the king of his kingdom. Our, our sin is a desire to establish autonomy from him to make ourselves our own kings. And what sets us up is when we are doubting that God really is good, that he is really trustworthy. And this leads us to a place where we decide we need to trust ourselves and depend on ourselves. And this is not how we were made. This leads us ultimately to giving ourselves permission to sin. This leads us to shame. And then our shame leads us to trying to fix and heal ourselves. And this ultimately is ineffective. The hope of the gospel is that hope has been, that God has given us grace and it's grace from him and it's grace that will be effective enough to deal with not only our sin but also our shame. And here we can have restoration. So we need to remember his character and run to him instead of from him with our sin. Let me pray for us.